Hello, fellow teachers. Welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and uh, thank you for letting me be a part of your scripture study or your lesson prep this week. My goal is to help you to either teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. This week, we are going to be studying 2 Nephi chapter 6 through 10. And reminder, teachers, if you're interested in the materials that I put together for teachers to help them reduce their preparation time, increase their confidence in the classroom, and create edifying classroom experiences, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. Now, if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. This week, we get to hear from Nephi's little brother, Jacob, which I know is kind of strange because we're in 2 Nephi. But unlike Laman and Lemuel, who couldn't cope with having their younger brother take the lead or have the spotlight, Nephi is ready and able to give the stage to Jacob. That's as if he's saying, you know, you should hear this talk that my younger brother gave. It is really, really good. And so these five chapters cover a discourse taught and given by Jacob. And we're going to hear more from Jacob as he has his own book of scripture that follows 2 Nephi. He's going to become the prophet of the Nephites after Nephi passes away. To begin, I'm just going to summarize chapter 6. It's a message that we've seen a number of times already in the Book of Mormon, and we're going to see it again. It's the basic history of the House of Israel, and that narrative is going to make many appearances in the Book of Mormon. And the basic flow of the chapter is as follows. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the Jews scattered, but they will return again. And at some future time, the Savior is going to visit them in the flesh, but they'll reject him. And again, they'll be scattered. But in the last days, they'll be gathered once again, and all who believe in him will be saved and delivered out of the hands of their enemies. But let's focus a little more directed attention on chapters 7 and 8. And they're Isaiah chapters. But don't, don't freak out on me here. We can handle this. And I'm not going to dive quite yet into an explanation on how best to study Isaiah. I'm going to save that for next week when we really get into the big section of Isaiah chapters. I think we're going to be okay here because these chapters aren't as difficult to understand as some of those others in 2 Nephi. So they're going to give us some good practice here. For an object, I would hang up a welcome home banner up at the front of my classroom. I'll put a link to one in the video description below. And then for an icebreaker, a short discussion question. What would you do if you were a parent and your son or daughter was returning home from a mission? How would you feel? How would you welcome them? Then, a little bit of a change of scenario. What if they were coming home after having stolen thousands of dollars from you and run away for years to live a lifestyle of partying, drugs, and immorality? What would you do if they showed up at your doorstep remorseful, wanting to come back? How would you respond? Today, we're going to examine how Christ reacts or deals with that kind of scenario. What's his attitude towards those who leave his path and then wish to return? How does 
he feel about that situation? And what does he do? And you may remember back in 1 Nephi 19.23 that Nephi found great value in likening the words of Isaiah to himself, and then he invited us to do the same thing. These chapters, 2 Nephi 7-8, through 8, are a perfect opportunity for us to do just that. They center on the house of Israel, who in Isaiah's day had strayed from it. They'd run away from home, so to speak. And this was Jesus Christ's message to them. Therefore, two suggested ways to, to read these chapters. One, you can look at it from the perspective of someone that you know who has strayed from the path. And you wonder how the Savior feels about them and wonder how you could approach the situation yourself. Does that person have any hope? Can you have any hope for them? Or maybe it would be more effective to approach these chapters a little more personally. Have you strayed from the Savior at all? Have we distanced ourselves from him or his church? Or maybe we're still active in body, but a bit inactive in spirit. Maybe we go to church, we serve in our calling, and maybe even say our prayers. But do we find that we have a bit of a lack of connection? If we feel distant from Christ for any reason, let's read these chapters with that in mind. And whenever we see the phrases house of Israel or Zion, all we need to do is just substitute our names and, and see how that can personalize the message for us. And I believe that if we do that with these two chapters, we're going to find a beautiful message of hope for people that we know that have strayed or for ourselves. This is the Lord's message of comfort to those who stray and wish to return. If you're teaching these chapters, sometimes the simplest approaches can be the most effective. There's a good chance that your students are fairly intimidated by Isaiah. So we're going to approach this as practice. They've got one goal and one goal only, and that is to find just one meaningful message in a group of assigned verses. That's it. They're not trying to interpret all the ins and outs. They're not attempting to go out and teach a comprehensive lesson on the verses they're assigned. And they may not even understand half the verses that they're reading. That's okay. It's just practice. With the above approach of considering how Christ feels about those who are trying to return, is there one verse or even one phrase that stands out to them that's meaningful? So teachers, you'll, you'll divide up the class into two groups by counting them off as either ones or twos, and then invite the ones to read the first half of chapter 20, verses 1 through 12, and the twos to read the second half of chapter 20, verses 13 through 25. Then have them read their section and be prepared to share at least one message from their verses that was meaningful to them. Give them about five to ten minutes to study, and then you can invite some to share. But first, to help them ease into Isaiah, you, as the teacher, are going to walk them through chapter 7 to help them get a sense of the way Isaiah writes and give an example of how to interpret him. Chapter 7 is, is just the shorter of the two chapters, so it's a good one for us to use as an example. If you're going to do that as a teacher, then you've got to be comfortable with it, have a good understanding of what's being said. So I'm going to help you, teachers, with that here. And then hopefully you can turn around and do something similar with your students. 
but don't feel tied to my explanation. If you find your own inspiration or meaning within these verses, don't hesitate to share that instead of my thoughts. I'm going to approach this as if the Savior were speaking to me by name. Here we go, starting with verse 1. Yea, for thus saith the Lord, Have I put thee away, or have I cast thee off forever? For thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away, or to which of my creditors have I sold you? Yea, to whom have I sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. So, if the Savior is speaking to me, and I'm feeling distant from the Lord and wondering where He is in my life, remember that's how we're going to liken the Scriptures here, here He says, Ben, have I abandoned you? If you think I have, where are the papers? The bill of your mother's divorcement. Have I sold you? If you think I have, then where's the receipt? They don't exist. And why? Because I've never given up on I never left you. If you feel distant, it's because you left me. You sold yourself, not the other way around. Verses 2 and 3. Wherefore, when I came, there was no man. When I called, yea, there was none to answer. O house of Israel, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make their rivers a wilderness and their fish to stink because the waters are dried up, and they die because of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness. I make sackcloth their cover. So, Ben, I've called you many times, but there was no answer. But have I lost my power to redeem you, to deliver you? I have all power over heaven and earth. I can do miraculous things. I haven't pulled my hand back. It's still reaching out to you. Come home. Do you think that I don't have power to redeem you? I have all power. Verse 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season unto thee, O house of Israel. When ye are weary, he waketh morning by morning. He waketh mine ear to hear as the learned. God has given me the power to speak to you in such a way that will help you to want to return. While you're sleeping, every morning I get up early just to prepare what I'm going to say to you. And now there's a little bit of a shift here. He's going to tell us what he's willing to do for us. As if he's saying, just look how much I love you. Look what I was willing to do for you. 5-7 through seven. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiter, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. So Ben, I went through a lot for you. God sent me to suffer for you, and I was obedient to that command. I let them scourge me, humiliate me, spit on me. It was really hard, but God helped me. I was determined to do it for you. 
My face was set like a flint, a, a stone. Nothing could stop me from seeking to help you. 8 and 9. And the Lord is near, and he justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near me, and I will smite him with the strength of my mouth. For the Lord God will help me, and all they who shall condemn me, behold, all they shall wax old as a garment, and the moth shall eat them up. I'm more powerful than sin, more powerful than death, more powerful than the adversary. Who will contend with me? Stand together with me, Ben, and we'll fight them off together. Together we can overcome all your challenges. We can conquer your demons. We can smite those self-defeating thoughts together. Verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness, and hath no light? Now that's a rhetorical question, and I hope that we all know the correct answer. What righteous person do you know of that walks in the dark? None of them. They all have light. So, come walk with me in my light. I'll teach you to walk in the light. 11. Behold all ye that kindle fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks which ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. So, Ben, don't try to do this by yourself. If you try to walk by your own light and try to make your own fire, all you're going to get is sparks. And that can only end in sorrow. That's chapter 7. Do you see how we, how we do this? How we can liken the words of Isaiah to ourselves? And, and you don't have to do what I just did. I, I just want you to study an assigned group of verses and try to get just one thing from them. Seek the Spirit. Go slowly. Ponder. And I feel fairly confident that you're going to find something meaningful in your assigned verses. So you send your students into chapter 8 as ones and twos, and then let them share. And before we move on to 2 Nephi 9, I hope you'll indulge me just a little and allow me to share some of my favorite verses from chapter 8. Verse 3, For the Lord shall comfort Zion, he will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. So, Ben, let me comfort you. I can make all the deserts of your life like the Garden of Eden. I can make you happy again and grateful to be alive. I can make you sing again. Verse 7, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart I have written my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revival. You don't need to be afraid of your enemies. Don't worry about what other people might say. 11 and 12. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return, and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy and holiness shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I am he, yea, I am he that comforteth you. Behold, who art thou, that thou shouldst be afraid of man? You can come back. Come back to me with joy and gladness, and you'll be welcomed. All your sorrow and your tears will flee away, 
I'm here. I'm here to comfort and help you. No reason to be afraid. 16. And I have put my words in thy mouth, and have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth. I say unto Zion, Behold, thou art my people. I'll teach you what to say and do. I'll protect you. I'm holding you in my hand. You are my son. Verse 22. Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord and thy God pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. So Ben, I'm pleading your case before God. I'm rooting for you. I know you've been drinking from the cup of bitterness and suffering and justice and consequence. But let me take that cup from you. You don't have to drink it. I will. I'll drink it for you. I will suffer your bitterness if you come to me. And then we end in triumph. Verses 24 and 25. Awake, awake. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So now it's time to wake up. It's time to get moving again. Get dressed in your Sunday best. That life of uncleanness and sorrow, that's behind you now. Shake off the dust of the past. Arise, stand up, and come and sit on a throne. Loose yourself from the chains of your past and sit with me in glory. Now, don't you just love Isaiah? He's so He's so personal, so conversational in tone. It really makes you feel like the Savior is talking to you. Our truth, simply put, Jesus Christ will welcome back with open arms anyone who wishes to return. To take this to heart, how many of you know somebody who left the path or the iron rod for a time but returned? And you know, maybe that person is you. What brought you or them back? And in my life, I can think of a few people like this. My grandpa was one of them. He left the church early in his marriage, and he didn't return until his late 60s. What brought him back? The love and the persistence of his family. And he came back. I know of a sister who left the rod for a time and a love and concern for her children and their spiritual future brought her back. I know of a former student who left the path and the consequences of his poor choices convinced him from experience that wickedness never was happiness. And he came back. The individual reasons for returning in each of these people I know is varied but they've all got something in common. Each of them was welcomed back by their Savior 
each of them felt of his love and his forgiveness. The moral of the stories here is, is that people can return. There's always a reason to hope in Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that if there's anybody out there that needs that message, any of you out there that are listening, I hope that you felt the power of Isaiah's words or, or Jesus Christ's words through Isaiah and that you'll respond to that gentle, loving, inviting voice. When we stray, he gently calls, return to me and I'll welcome you back. All right, 2 Nephi chapter 9. This is the big one this week. <laughs> Very similar to 2 Nephi chapter 2, which was spoken by Lehi to Jacob. So here we've got him elaborating on some of those amazing things that he was taught by his father. These two chapters really go together, 2 Nephi 2 and 9. Two very deeply doctrinal chapters. They really, really help us to understand the plan of salvation better. And for an object to this lesson, I'd bring in a sword. Now, I've got a sword that I use quite often as a teacher. Uh, swords just happen to come up in the scriptures quite a bit. So I've found that having that particular object is pretty useful as a teacher. And it's not a sharp sword, so it's not really dangerous, but it always makes an impression, especially on the teenagers the teenage boys in particular. If you're interested in purchasing a sword for this and future lessons, I'll provide a link to a relatively inexpensive one on Amazon. For an icebreaker, I do a quick activity. I'm going to display some famous monsters. Right? Your job is to name them. You could even do this as a handout if you wish, just a, a quick activity to get them going. Uh, so here are the monsters. Uh, this is the Rancor from Star Wars. Mike Wazowski. The Loch Ness Monster. Frankenstein. Bigfoot. Medusa from Greek mythology. Cookie Monster. And... Godzilla. Well, monsters just seem to capture our imagination as humans, and they've been around as an idea for millennia. From the monsters of Greek mythology, uh, Leviathan in the Bible, the legend of Bigfoot, or even Cookie Monster, this idea of imaginary creatures has been a part of almost every culture since the beginning of time. And maybe they've captured your imagination. Were any of you afraid of monsters when you were a child? Monsters hiding in your closet, under your bed. I know I was. I remember that I used to jump to my bed every night because I just knew that some big furry claws were going to reach out and drag me under to certain doom. I also remember waking up one night and seeing a strange shape in my room, a shadow. And I was just certain that it was a monster that was coming to get me. And I screamed until my parents came running into the room. And when they turned on the light, 
It was just my winter coat that I draped over the chair. And perhaps as a teacher, you or some of your class members could share some of their monster fears or stories. Well, there's a monster in 2 Nephi chapter 9. I want you to find it. He's hiding somewhere in the first 13 verses. Where is he and what's his name? There'd be a monster hunter here. And he's in verse 10, all right? Oh, how great the goodness of our God, who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster. Yea, that monster, death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. That's a pretty awful monster. Death and hell, physical death and spiritual death. And to clarify that doctrine here, spiritual death doesn't mean that our spirits die, that they cease to exist. It means a separation from the presence of God. And so in my mind, I picture this monster with two giant claws reaching out for me. For some reason, I always picture the Rancor from Return of the Jedi. But I would label his claws death and hell. Spiritual death, physical death. And because of the fall of Adam, all of us have become subject to that monster. Like Luke Skywalker who falls into the rancor pit. And there we are, face to face with this, this beast. Just like my father used to come into my room at night and make sure that there were no monsters under my bed or in my closet, we have a loving father who comes to rid our room of this monster. Or we can picture Jesus as the great monster slayer who fights the monster off for us. And that, that monster with the two claws, Jesus Christ has a two-edged sword that he uses to lop off the claws of the monster and make him powerless. And at that point, I'd pick up my sword. What is that sword? Two-edged sword. Take a look in verses 6 through 7. What could we name that two-edged sword? For as death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator, there must needs be a power of resurrection. And the resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall. And the fall came by reason of transgression, and because man became fallen, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord. Wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore, the first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained to an endless duration. And if so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to its mother earth, to rise no more. So did you see the sword? The resurrection and the atonement. This powerful sword was used by Christ to defeat both death and hell. Those two claws. He overcame both for us. And that's our basic doctrine here in this chapter. The main truth that Jacob wants us to understand here. Through his atonement and resurrection, Jesus Christ overcame sin and death 
for us. But there's more he wants us to understand about that particular doctrine. Second Nephi 9 is going to deepen our knowledge of that basic truth. So now I want you to do a little personal study on the atonement and the resurrection. I'm going to ask you four doctrinal questions and see if you can find the answers. I'll give you the verses where the answers are found. But here are the questions. If there had been no resurrection or atonement, what would have been the results? 2 Nephi 9, 7-9. 2. Did Christ suffer for the unlawful actions of those who don't understand the laws of God, like little children, the mentally disabled, or the ignorant? 2 Nephi 9, 25-26 Did Christ pay for the sins of those who will never accept Him, or His atonement? 2 Nephi 9, 21 Question number 4 Why did Christ need to pay for the sins and transgressions of all individuals? 2 Nephi 9, 22 Answers at number one, if there had been no resurrection or atonement, what would have been the results? Seven through nine. Wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement. This corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore, the first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained to an endless duration. And if so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to its mother earth to rise no more. Oh, the wisdom of God, his mercy and grace. For behold, if the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal God and became the devil to rise no more. And our spirits must have become like unto him, and we become devils, angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of God and to remain with the father of lies, in misery, like unto himself. Yea, to that being who beguiled our first parents, who transformeth himself nigh unto an angel of light, and stirreth up the children of men unto secret combinations of murder and all manner of secret works of darkness. Sounds bleak, doesn't it? It's pretty clear how important the resurrection and the atonement are in the plan of salvation. We would have died and never been able to return to our bodies again. And we'd be miserable with Lucifer forever. Question number two. Did Christ pay for the unlawful actions of those who don't understand the laws of God, like little children, the mentally disabled, or the ignorant? Verses 25 and 26. Wherefore he has given a law, and where there is no law given, there is no punishment. And where there is no punishment, there is no condemnation. And where there is no condemnation, the mercies of the Holy One of Israel have claim upon them because of the atonement, for they are delivered by the power of him. For the atonement satisfieth the demands of his justice upon all those who have not the law given to them, that they are delivered from that awful monster, death and hell, and the devil and the lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment and they are restored to that God who gave them breath, which is the Holy One of Israel. So, yes, 
their unlawful actions need to be paid for as well. But Jesus took those upon himself, and therefore death and hell have no claim on them either. The monster can't get them. Number three, did Christ suffer for the sins of those who will never accept him or his atonement? Verse 21, And he cometh into the world that he may save all men, if they will hearken unto his voice. For behold, he suffereth the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children, who belong to the family of Adam. So yes, he did suffer for their pains. Even those who don't accept him or his sacrifice, he suffers the pains of every man, woman, and child that ever lived. Which really begs our next question. Why did Christ need to pay for the sins and transgressions of all individuals? That, that almost doesn't seem to make sense. Why have Jesus suffer for the sins of people who don't accept him? Don't they have to suffer for those things themselves, like Doctrine and Covenants 19 teaches us? Well, yes, they do, but so does Christ. Christ suffers those sins too. Why? Verse 22 holds part of the answer. And he suffereth this, that the resurrection might pass upon all men, that all might stand before him at the great and judgment day. So the resurrection and the atonement make it possible for all people to be brought back to the presence of God and Christ to be judged. No unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God. But everybody needs to stand before him to be judged. So the power of the resurrection and the atonement come into play here. Because Jesus suffered the sins of all, all can have their fallen state, at least temporarily, overcome so that they can have that final judgment. And those who have accepted Christ's sacrifice and have sought to live a celestial law will be able to continue in the presence of God. Those who have not, well, they'll be assigned the lesser kingdom of glory or outer darkness. So the atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ was absolutely necessary not only for us to live forever with a resurrected body, but it also makes it possible for all of us to stand before God at the final judgment, a very essential part of God's plan of happiness. So, if you wish to sink this truth deeper into your students' hearts, the following video might be helpful. It's a bit more Christmas-themed, but it does an excellent job of helping us to understand what our existence or our lives or our eternal lives would, would have been like without Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. What it would have been like had the monster won. To take it to heart, how does it make you feel to know that Christ has rescued you from the monster of death and hell? And it makes me eternally grateful that we have a hero, a savior, a loving father who rescues us from the claws of the monster and provides us a way to escape it. We don't have to fight it. He fought it in Gethsemane and on the cross. 
And let's be certain about one thing. This was no easy fight. This wasn't a quick slash of the sword and a swift victory. Christ struggled and fought and suffered more deeply than any mortal being in eternity. For me and for you. That monster took an incredible toll on our Redeemer. But when the dust settled and the darkness finally lifted, Christ stood victorious over that awful beast and raised his sword high for all to see. I'm grateful for that sword, and even more grateful for he that wields it. Now that is just one of the many lessons that 2 Nephi 9 has to teach us. There's more here, a lot more. It's a big chapter. And I would like to focus on just one more aspect of it. For an object, I'd bring in a scale, or at least display a picture of one, one of those old-fashioned balancing scales. I actually even bought a little plastic scale that I often use as a teacher to illustrate the principle of balance, or justice, even. I'll put a link in the video description below if you're interested in getting one of those. Before an icebreaker, I display the scale and ask my students if anyone knows the technical term for the part of the scale that the two sides balance or pivot on. It's called the fulcrum. All the weight rests or focuses on that one point. It's the most critical part of the balance. Well, if the scale stands as a representation of the plan of salvation and our part in it, what would you say is the fulcrum point of the plan? The part upon which all the rest of the plan pivots. The part of the plan where everything before it is leading up to and pointing to it. And then everything after it is affected by that moment. From this list, what do you think it would be? The war in heaven? Birth? Death, the resurrection, the millennium, the final judgment, eternity in the kingdoms of glory. So which one did you choose? Which, which one would you say is the fulcrum for a person? I know which one Jacob would have chosen. Check your answer by going to 2 Nephi 9, 15. What is it? The judgment. The final judgment. You could even say that our object lesson was a bit of a hint. Scales are a common symbol for justice and judgment. And how is the final judgment like a fulcrum point? Well, everything that comes before it is going to be taken into account at the judgment. All of our pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal decisions and actions are going to be considered at the final judgment. And then our eternal destinies following the judgment are going to be determined by it. For us personally, the whole plan really balances on that moment. And if I had to choose just one verse to hang the rest of our lesson on, the major idea that I feel Jacob is trying to get across to us here, it would be verse 46. There are two adjectives that catch my eye in that verse. The final judgment can be one of two kinds of experiences for us. 
What two words, what adjectives best describe what the final judgment might be for us? It can be either blank or blank. Let's read it together. Prepare your souls for that glorious day when justice shall be administered unto the righteous, even the day of judgment, that you may not shrink with awful fear, that ye may not remember your awful guilt in perfectness, and be constrained to exclaim, Holy, holy are thy judgments, O Lord God Almighty. But I know my guilt, I transgress thy law, and my transgressions are mine, and the devil hath obtained me, that I am a prey to his awful misery. Did you catch the adjectives? The final judgment can be either glorious or awful. Those are the key words for the rest of the lesson. Just approach the rest of the chapter with those two words in mind. Which would you like the final judgment to be? Glorious or awful? Now We want it to be glorious, right? Jacob is going to teach us how. For a search activity, you could use a simple handout. I've got a list of verses from 2 Nephi 9 that I want you to study. Your challenge will be to put the selected verse or group of verses on the correct part of the handout. Do they describe things that will make for a glorious judgment? Or do they describe things that will make for an awful judgment? Or does it contain examples of both? Also, as we go, we're going to want to mark those things in two different colors. So when we're done, we're going to be able to plainly see the choice that we have to make or the plan that we need to follow. So, first, verse 14. Wherefore, we shall have a perfect knowledge of all our guilt and our uncleanness and our nakedness. And the righteous shall have a perfect knowledge of their enjoyment and their righteousness, being clothed with purity, yea, even with the robe of righteousness. Well, that verse is going to fit into the both category, isn't it? It talks about the two different types of perfect knowledge that we may experience. On the one side, we may experience a perfect knowledge of all our guilt and our uncleanness. What does that exactly mean? I don't know. But I've got a theory that I honestly hope is wrong. It's a possibility, though, I suppose. Could it mean that I will fully understand how my unrighteous actions and decisions have impacted and affected others? Maybe we don't fully comprehend that now. Perhaps people saw us doing something and, and it shook their faith. Or they justified their own sinful actions because they saw us doing it. And we may have never even realized it. What impact did our anger, our impatience, our lust, our selfishness, have on others. I remember a friend of mine in college who was distraught with the bad decisions and lifestyle of his younger brother, saying that he could never forgive himself because he was the one who had gotten his brother into the type of music that promoted that lifestyle. So when that friend of mine served a mission, he gave up that music. He was strong enough to. But his little brother wasn't, and it had a lasting influence on him. And my, my friend felt responsible for that, wrongly or rightly. He, he felt it. 
Can you imagine how awful it would be to completely and totally see the negative impact our life may have had on others? That sounds awful to me. And I hope that's not what it means. And I do believe that the gospel and atonement of Christ can cover and heal even those types of things. And people need to be accountable for their own decisions. We've got to keep both of those things in mind, too. On the other hand, let's use that same logic in the positive. Because that verse also speaks of receiving a perfect knowledge of their enjoyment and righteousness. And I do hope that this is what this means. Perhaps we'll come to fully understand how our righteous actions and decisions have impacted and affected other people. How our example blessed them, changed them, led them in the right direction. We may not fully comprehend that now. But wouldn't it be amazing to have a perfect knowledge of our positive influence? The best example I can think of that principle is that old black and white Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey is given a perfect knowledge of the good influence his life had had. Maybe we too will receive the gift of knowing what the world would have been like without us. Quick story. I remember refusing to look at a pornographic image that some boys in my computer class had brought up on their screen. And later that month, another classmate passed me a note thanking me for my good example. That because I had refused to look, that it gave them the strength and resolve not to look either. I didn't even know anybody was watching. If they hadn't given me that note, I would have never known. And how many things like that are out there for us? How would it feel at the last day to have a perfect knowledge of all the good your life did? To have your own it's a wonderful life type moment. That would be glorious, wouldn't it? And another thought from that verse, there are two options of how we would like to appear before God at the judgment, naked or clothed, clothed with purity and the robe of righteousness. Wouldn't it be awful to appear naked before God? Is that how you want to meet him? And of course, that's symbolic, not literal, but it's a pretty effective metaphor, isn't it? How would you feel? Ashamed, embarrassed, you'd want to hide. The scriptures say that some will wish that the mountains and rocks would fall on them to hide them from the face of God. Because when we sin, typically we wish to hide those things. We don't want other people to know about those kinds of things that we do, our secret sins. We can't hide those things from God. All will be exposed. And that would be awful, wouldn't it? Or we can come to the judgment clothed with purity and righteousness. That's how I want to appear before God. I know I've shared this thought before, but I love the image of the great locker room in the sky. Each one of us has a locker with our name in gold right above it. And inside is what we're going to wear to the judgment. And each day of our lives, we're weaving threads into that clothing through our obedience, our sacrifice, and our service. And if our lives have been full of those kinds of things, when we open the locker, for women, there will be a beautiful dress. And for men a nice-looking three-piece suit. That's how I want to appear before the judgment seat, clothed and confident. But if our lives haven't been full of obedience and sacrifice and service, we might be horrified to see what we would have to wear or what we won't have to wear before the judgment throne of God. Hopefully we can approach it fully clothed in purity and righteousness.
Another way of looking at this is through the lens of the Adam and Eve story. They too felt ashamed after they had partaken of the forbidden fruit, and they sought to hide themselves from God, to hide their nakedness. They also tried to make their own covering with fig leaves. Not a very effective covering, in my opinion. But they confessed their actions to God, turned to Him, and they were forgiven. And then God gave them a better covering for their nakedness. Animal skins. He clothed them. It's a great symbol for the atonement. That animal that was sacrificed in order to provide a covering was the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Made it possible for us to be clothed with purity. Even though we too, at times, will partake of forbidden fruit. That, that verse there is a key one, isn't it? Verse 18, But behold, the righteous, the saints of the Holy One of Israel, they who have believed in the Holy One of Israel, they who have endured the crosses of the world and despised the shame of it, they shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and their joy shall be full forever. That would go on our glorious side, wouldn't it? These are things that we've got to do in order to make the judgment day glorious. Believe in the Holy One of Israel, endure the crosses of the world, and despise the shame of it. We've got to believe, develop faith in Christ, endure the crosses. It's important for us to understand that we're going to need to carry some of those. The glory doesn't come yet. On Christ's straight and narrow path, there are crosses. And the only way forward is to pick them up and carry them. And not everybody's cross is the same. Maybe our cross is a physical or mental disability. Maybe it's a rough home life, losing a child, overcoming an addiction, standing firm in the face of persecution and ridicule, depression, financial difficulties, loneliness. Or they're the crosses of living righteous in a wicked world. It's not easy to be the one that chooses the right when everybody around us is doing otherwise. We all have crosses to bear, opposition in all things. And we're going to have to despise the shame of them. And what does that mean? Maybe that means that we don't care when they make fun of us or ridicule us. When we hear the laughter of the great and spacious building, we heed them not. It could also mean that I don't participate in the shameful things the world does. Both of those interpretations work. Verse 21. And he cometh into the world that he may save all men if they will hearken unto his voice. For behold, he suffereth the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children who belong to the family of Adam. Glorious, if I hearken to the voice of the Savior. Verse 23. And he commandeth all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in the Holy One of Israel or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. That's going to go on our glorious side. Repentance, baptism, faith, enduring to the end. It reminds us of the fourth article of faith, the, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. I just don't see a mention of the gift of the Holy Ghost, but perhaps we can imply that here. This is the Lord's path. Verse 24, on the other hand, and if they will not repent and believe in his name and be baptized in his name and endure to the end, they must be damned. For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has spoken it. 
And that's the awful alternative. If I ignore the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Verse 27. But woe unto him that has the law given, yea, that has all the commandments of God, like unto us, and that transgresseth them, and that wasteth the days of his probation. For awful is his state. Now, that's, that's an awful verse. Those that knowingly transgress God's laws and waste the days of their probation will end up in an awful state. If I know God's laws and I still transgress them, it's going to be worse for me than if I never knew them in the first place. Sinning in ignorance is one thing, but knowingly transgressing is completely another. Verse 28. Oh, that cunning plan of the evil one. Oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men. When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God. For they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore, their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. That's going to be on our awful side. To be learned, but unwise. These are those who go out and read every book they can get their hands on, develop their minds, earn degrees, and plumb the depths of academic and intellectual scholarship. But in the midst of that good quest for knowledge, they lose their humility and respect for God's counsels. That's one way we, we waste the days of our probation. On the other hand, let's not forget verse 29, but to be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God. God loves education, spiritual and secular using our minds to the utmost capacity. So let's learn all we can, but maintain wisdom. And wisdom dictates hearkening unto God's counsels. Now I'm going to lump verses 30 through 38 together. And they're all awful. Right? These are the woes of 2 Nephi 9. Which, by the way, is kind of a fun alternate activity here in chapter 9. Find all the O's and all the woes. Jacob uses those two words quite a bit. But here we find a list of awful attitudes and actions that can lead to an awful judgment day. Setting my heart on riches, refusing to hear God's counsels, refusing to see God's wisdom, hardening my heart, lying, murder, sexual sin, idolatry, and above all, refusing to repent for any of these things, which we can they shall return to God, but remain in their sins. It's awful. Verse 39. I like this one a lot. Oh, my beloved brethren, remember the awfulness in transgressing against that holy God and also the awfulness of yielding to the enticings of that cunning one. Remember, to be carnally minded is death and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. That verse is going to go into the both category. There are two types of mind that I can have. The carnal mind or the spiritual mind. If I'm carnally minded, it's going to lead me to spiritual death. If I'm spiritually minded, it will lead me to life eternal. Kind of heard of being right-brained or left-brained? Here we've got a similar dynamic. A carnal mind or a spiritual mind. King Benjamin's going to talk about those two sides that we all have inside us, but he's going to give them the terms the natural man and the saint. 
The carnally-minded individual is always looking to please and strengthen the natural man, to give in to lust, greed, laziness, and pride. They want what they want right now, and they're constantly yielding to the enticings of the cunning one. The spiritually-minded individual seeks to please and strengthen the saint or the spirit within him, to strive for cleanliness, humility, obedience, and sacrifice. Which of the two do we most seek to please? It's awful to have a carnal mind, but glorious to have a spiritual one. Now you can see how we could spend a lot of time really digging deep into each one of these verses. We've done a bit of that here because they're so good. But maybe we should just do a few quick ones where I won't read the entire verse. Verse 40 is bold. It's awful to revile against the truth, but it's glorious to love the truth. Verse 45, glorious. It's glorious to shake off the chains of the devil and come unto God, the rock of our salvation. Verse 49, it's glorious to abhor sin and delight in righteousness. As Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, we want to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Verse 51 could be a both kind of verse. The first part tells us about something awful we can do, spending money on things which are of no worth and laboring for things which can't satisfy. Great description of the wares of the world. But if I hearken, remember, come, feast, and delight, my state will be a glorious one. I love how he says, let your souls delight in fatness. In most areas of life, we want to practice restraint and prudence. But there's one area where we're encouraged to indulge. The things of God. It's like he says, go ahead, get fat on the gospel. Go back for seconds. Go back for thirds. Heap up your plate with the things of God. Feast until you become spiritually obese. <laughs> no, that's, that's a glorious kind of fatness. But if I spiritually restrict my calories, starve myself from the things of God, and I'm a spiritual stick figure, then that will be awful. And verse 52 adds to our list of glorious verbs. Remember, pray, give thanks, and rejoice. Now, I think that's going to that's gonna do for us here. Realizing that there is more to this chapter. It's a long one. But I think we've covered enough verses to make the point or our decision clear. Truth, to summarize it in one short statement, I like to key off that idea we talked about back in verse 39. I feel that it encapsulates all of the actions and attitudes that we just studied. If I'm carnally minded, my final judgment will be awful. If I'm spiritually minded, my final judgment will be glorious. And now a pondering question for us to consider. An exercise of the imagination. If the final judgment were tomorrow, would it be awful or glorious for us? And if we're afraid that it might be awful, take heart. The final judgment isn't tomorrow, as far as we know. We still have time. We can make a change. The days of our probation aren't over. So let's not waste them. We have the resurrection and atonement of Jesus Christ to rely on. That can save us from the monster of death and hell. 
but we've got to choose the glorious things. For an I will go and do. As Jacob has taught us, have you felt any spiritual promptings? What do you hear today? It's probably going to be different for all of us. And maybe we felt the comforting influence of the Spirit encouraging us to continue down the path of glory that we're striving to walk. Or maybe it's prompting us to get rid of something awful in our lives. Whatever it is that the Spirit is prompting, I urge us to follow it. Let's seek to do the things that will make that watershed, fulcrum day a glorious one and not an awful one. Things that will make that day the greatest day of our existence. And if we do our part, Christ is sure to do His. With all of these things that we've just reviewed that we must do, let's also remember that the only reason we even have a chance of a glorious judgment day is because of the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. Hopefully we can say with Jacob, Oh, the wisdom of God, His mercy and grace. Oh, how great the goodness of our God. Oh, how great the plan of our God. Oh, the greatness and the justice of our God. Oh, the greatness of the mercy of our God. Oh, how great the holiness of our God. Perhaps the best way to end this discussion would be with Jacob's parting words of counsel in chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Therefore, cheer up your hearts and remember that you are free to act for yourselves to choose the way of everlasting death or the way of eternal life. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. And remember, after you are reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. Wherefore, may God raise you from death by the power of the resurrection and also from everlasting death by the power of the atonement that ye may be received into the eternal kingdom of God, that ye may praise Him through grace divine. Amen. And that will conclude our lesson for this week. I know that a few weeks ago I said that we would cover some truths from 2 Nephi 1 and then pair them with 2 Nephi 10. But I'm afraid that if I do that, this video is going to be far longer than the format that I wish to keep it in. So if you want some insight on that, on those two chapters, I'll include some thoughts in the lesson plan materials and on my blog if you're interested. But we're going to go ahead and close our study here. I pray that you felt the great spirit of Jacob's teachings here. And if you feel like our study here was helpful, I encourage you to share it with somebody else that you feel it could help. Thank you so much for watching. Let's get out there and teach with power.